Welcome to episode number 255. Today's episode is a fun one. We're going to be talking about common mistakes people make in the garden, specifically the vegetable garden. And they're not mistakes that you're probably going to be expecting to hear. So how is that for a teaser? (laughs) Let me welcome you to the podcast. This is the Pioneering Today podcast. I am your host, Melissa K. Norris, author of three best-selling books, including my newest book, The Family Garden Plan, How to Grow a Year's Worth of Healthy and Sustainable Food at Home for Your Family, as well as the founder of the Pioneering Today Academy and my website, melissaknorris.com. All of those places and this podcast is where I share ways for you to live a more homegrown and handmade life. Now, today's episode, we're going to be talking on gardening, vegetable gardening, kind of already gave that away. But in some of my previous episodes, you guys, I told you to let me know if you wanted an episode on raising meat chickens, raising chickens for meat. And oh my goodness, yes. Yes, you do. So that is going to be an upcoming episode very shortly. So if you are not subscribed to the podcast already, make sure that you hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the new episodes coming up. And let's face it, we're all busy, even if we're spending more time at home than usual right now. Seems like there's still a lot of things to be done. So it makes life easier if we're just subscribed to things and we don't have to go and hunt up episodes. They are there waiting for us whenever we have a moment to listen. Now, if learning to grow more of your own food this year is on your bucket list, which I hope it is, it's a goal of mine every year and especially this year to grow more food than I did the year before. Now, you're going to notice that I said more food than what I grew the year before. So that amount is going to look different for every single one of us because I don't want any of us to ever feel like we are in a competition with other gardeners or with other people Maybe I'm the only person who tends to have a little bit of competitiveness in them. I truly do. (laughs) So I always remind myself it's doing a little bit better compared to what I did the year before. But if that is your goal is to grow more food than you did last year, you're going to love this episode, but you're also going to love if you missed it. I am doing another free viewing period of the full organic gardening workshop. So it is spaced out over six days. So don't worry, it's not all the videos at once, but it's over 25 videos. And usually it's between three and four videos a day, walking you through all the aspects of growing organic vegetables in your backyard. So things like companion planting and crop rotation and organic natural pest control and natural disease control, permaculture using cold frames, which I know for some of the country, you are like cold frames, we are already getting hot. Well, let me tell you for myself up north, I'm still using cold frames because it's still too cold for me to put out things like tomatoes and peppers without the aid of cold frames. And they'll also come in very, very handy when we hit the fall to extend that growing season. But there's a lot more in there. Those are just a few little snippets of things kind of teasers, but you get to watch all of the videos for free. So you can go to melissacanorris.com forward slash workshop, and you will get access to those videos. You're not going to want to miss them. Okay, let's get to today's episode. So today's episode is an interview, and this is a really fun interview. It is with Stacy. So Stacy Stacy Murphy is one of the world's top gardening experts. Stacy has been featured on Martha Stewart Radio, PBS's Growing a Greener World, and she once appeared on the David Letterman Show featuring a giant radish. But Stacy's known for her superpower of packing literally tons of vegetables and herbs into tight spaces, and she has helped thousands of new gardeners from six continents enjoy fresh, affordable food grown at home whether that's a pot on a windowsill or a front lawn full of veggies. And Stacy and I have actually, we've gotten to meet in person. She lives down in San Diego and I'm up in Washington state, but we got to meet in person and we're hoping to be able to meet up again uh, when everything has been lifted this winter. 
We've also gotten to do quite a few different um, classes and stuff together virtually online and teaching. And so Stacy is just really fun. She is a wealth of knowledge and just a bright soul. So I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. So let's get to it. Well, guys, I am super excited to introduce you to today's guest because we actually have got to meet in person. We've connected a ton online and she is just so much fun. I really enjoy her and I know you guys are too. And not only just enjoying her because she's a fun soul, but she's got a wealth of information that is going to help you out. So Stacy, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. And I just love what you're doing. I love the way that you make everything look so easy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, well, thank you. Um, I hope I don't make it look too easy because it's not always easy, but it's definitely enjoyable. Even, <laughs> even those, those hard times that might not seem enjoyable when you look back at them, like that, that beautiful gift of hindsight, right? You look back and you're like, okay, I totally learned something from that. And so there's good to be taken for it, which actually... <laughs> naturally just leads into what we were going to be talking about and sharing today, which is mistakes that people make in their garden when they're growing their vegetables and their herbs. So you just like lined that up perfectly without even realizing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when, when something does look really easy, it oftentimes means that you've, you've learned it over time. That's sort of what making something easy looks like, right? <laughs> yes, it definitely true. I, and I have to remind myself of that because there's definitely other skill sets that I see out and about in the world and that other people have and things that I want to learn. And I, the same thing, I look and I'm like, man, they look, make that look just so simple and so easy. But like you said, it's because they've been doing it for a long time and yeah. they've learned ways and systems to make it easy and very doable. So <laughs> good point. Well, you got, just for those of you who might not be as familiar with Stacy as I am, though I'm sure many of you are, um, give listeners just a, a, a quick kind of little, I guess recap wouldn't be right because we haven't went into it yet, but um, little window into uh, your garden, what you're doing and where you're currently growing at. Yeah. So I help hundreds of thousands of people from six different continents grow vegetables and herbs. And I just want that to sink in for a minute. Hundreds of thousands of people from six different continents. So what that means is that wherever you are, there's something that you can grow. And, um, and what I've also noticed is that from helping people all around the world, and I've grown all around the United States, I've grown in the north, in the south, in the heat, in the desert, in the mountains, you know, all over the place. And what I've noticed is that people run into all the same sorts of challenges. Uh, and so what I love about gardening, I've grown all over the United States. What I love about gardening is just this, uh, it's so convenient <laughs> to walk into your backyard and to grab some herbs and flavor your food, to grab some greens, make a smoothie. And so I really enjoy spreading that to people who, who that's something that they want for their life. Just this very, you know, this lifestyle of health and vitality that just feels effortless. So along the way, I've definitely made some mistakes. And so I like to share those mistakes just to help people make it easier as they move forward. Yeah, I think that's great. And it's so funny when you were saying just going out to the backyard and and picking something. So we, at the time of this recording, it's in April. So where I live up in the mountains in the north, there's very, I have a few cold crops that I can grow outside, but the majority of my growing doesn't happen until much later in the summer. But I have lettuce because it grows very well in cooler temperatures. And so we were making a salad last night for dinner. And I got to be honest, just plain lettuce like I got to have something to dress that bad boy up. <laughs> like I just don't enjoy plain lettuce. I'll be honest. And I had I'd start, I start a lot of seeds indoors just because in this cooler, cooler climate, if I don't, then I'm not going to be able to grow them. And so I had started a bunch of holy basil and it was at the point that I could start pinching off leaves. Now it's in actually in the corner of my living room. So it was very close to where I was preparing dinner in the kitchen. And I just could go right under the grow light and just pinch a couple of them off. And it was only about five leaves to the whole salad, but I tell you what, it just made it. I mean, that, that flavor, I mean, like I got excited about a green salad and it was all because of that fresh holy basil and the lettuce was fresh too, but yeah, yeah it's really awesome. So please share with us some of those mistakes uh, <laughs> because it, 
in this time, as we're recording this in Lynn Lifetime, though these mistakes are universal, just like you shared, and no matter where you're growing, um, we are in the, in the COVID-19 still, where a lot of people can't get out or there's not as much food on the grocery store shelves, et cetera, and are really looking to provide for themselves and to have food growing outside their back door. So I think it, this is very timely in that manner so that we can help as many people as possible avoid these mistakes. Yeah. And I think the, the first thing that I would share is that I think when, especially in this mindset of, I want to provide for my family, that it puts pressure on a garden to produce food right away. And, and so the first thing that I would always share with people is there's this, there are things that you can put on your table pretty quickly, and we'll talk about those. But I also want to share with, with everybody this number one mistake that I, that I see people make is they, they move into production mentality first without taking a moment to appreciate uh, what nature is and just being curious about the process. And so for, there's a lot of things in the world where you can just say, okay, here's step one, step two, step three. And then when you get to step four, you get your result. And oftentimes with gardening, what you're going to find is that you do everything that people say to do, and then something comes along and it's a little bit different. And that has to do with the biodiversity of nature and the wonderful abundance of nature and the just magnitude of diversity that there is. And so when we start to put too much pressure on productivity, like I want this now, I, it has to give me the results I want. One of the results that I, that I encourage people to embrace is just the love and the curiosity of the nature, because here's the deal that nobody talks about. I don't know if you're familiar with this, Melissa, but there was a, a study done where they put two groups of plants out and they were using all the same techniques on them, the same watering, the same soil, the same seeds, the same everything, the same light. But on one set of plants, they, they basically focused their love and appreciation on them. And what they found was that those plants grew larger and faster. And so sometimes with our gardening, when we start to put too much pressure on the plants and start to, to st our brain does this thing. And ironically, one of the best fertilizers is our love and appreciation. <laughs> and so for this number one mistake, I think that people make is just this productivity pressure on an, when you're beginning, you know, when you have more experience and you start to ramp things up and you start to understand how things work, then you can start to move into this, this mindset of like, okay, how do I maximize this? How do I maximize this? But when you're first getting started, I would recommend focusing on just the love of the process and the love of the plants. And you're going to be shocked that things go really well, even when you forget to do things like you might forget to water and you might still have success because you've love and appreciated them. It's very strange, but it's actually true. They've shown it in some studies. I don't know if you've seen that. You know, I've heard people mention the study. I haven't actually viewed the study myself, but it's really funny because for years, and I was really lucky. I grew up in a home that we raised our own food, you know, from my earliest childhood days. So I always had the benefit of teachers in the garden in the form of my parents. But when we started our own garden, I was really focused on food production and I still am focused on food production. Like, I'll be honest, like that's why I do our vegetable garden is I want to get that harvest. But about five years ago, I really realized that that was my only focus and that I really wanted the garden as I was out there doing that work. Because like you said, very few things, there are some crops that you can plant and get a harvest relatively soon, but a lot of crops, you're looking at um, three months for a lot of annual vegetables before you get the majority of the harvest. When we talk perennials, oh my goodness, you're looking at years on fruit trees before you're going to get a harvest. And I realized that I wanted my time that I was spending out in the garden and doing the, the work and, and just being out there, that I wanted it to be a place of beauty as well as functionality. So about five years ago, I really intentionally started looking at putting in more flowers. Um, some of them were for pollinator and some was companion planting. And some of them were just for the fact that I thought they were gorgeous and beautiful flowers and that my garden 
was this place as a whole function and not just food production, though that was part of it. And I have to say, it's so funny. I, I didn't really put together the correlation that you were just sharing and, and I hadn't seen that study myself, but things definitely grow better every single year. And, and some of that I would like to think is, is a learning curve. You know, gardening is a journey, even though I've been growing garden for 20 plus years, I still learn something new every single year. Um, but I didn't really put that correlation between the two, how I was creating this, this place of beauty and enjoyment um, and the effects that that would have on the overall production. So that's really fascinating, actually. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things. And here, I live actually with uh, 11 people. We live in an intentional community here in San Diego. And there's all of us who have the intention on the garden. And I've noticed that when everybody's intentions are aligned on the garden, that the garden is even more lush. And I've noticed that in times when nobody's home for months or the people who live here are not interested in gardening, the garden shrinks. It's really fascinating to me that I watch it literally, even though we're, I'm doing all the same things, I'm adding all the same fertility, I'm planting all the same seeds, we're going through all the same seasons. It's a collection of the intentions of the house that shapes how the garden grows. It's very fascinating. <laughs> it is. Yeah, that is. And really, honestly, in times of stress, which a lot of people are experiencing some heightened stress and anxiety and whatnot with the, the whole situation that we're in as a world right now, we really need even more than normal a place where we, and to be appreciative of things and, you know, to dream and, and to be thankful and just to bring all of those positive uh, attributes and focus and to keep those front and center in our mind uh, to combat those stress levels. Yeah. And nature really delivers. Nature is so abundant. It's so beautiful. And it, it actually leads me to the second mistake that I see a lot of people make. And that is, it's related, but it's a little bit different. It's, it's the feeling of needing to do too much. So and the mistake is that, how do I word this? It's kind of like a negative mistake. It's the mistake in thinking that you are growing the plants. So um, how do I word this differently? Plants want to grow. They want to thrive. That's what they're, that's how they're wired. That they want to, they want, they want all the same things that we do. They want to thrive. They want to grow. They want to produce the next generation. And oftentimes we talk about, like I have courses that are called how to grow your own vegetables and how to grow $400 worth of vegetables in 40 days. And it's kind of a misnomer because the plants, like you're not actually the one growing, like the plants are the ones doing all the work. And so, the mistake that I see people making is focusing on what they're doing instead of focusing on creating conditions for the plants to thrive. And so, you know, it just goes to those basics really of, you know, plants understanding that your vegetable and herb plants, they want six to eight hours of sun, ideally. Yes, there are some that are going to grow in the shade and they're going to grow a little bit slower in the shade, but if you give them the sun, they're going to flourish, you know, and if they get the water that they need, and if they get a little bit of support, potentially that helps, you know, by way of like trellis and those sorts of things and some pruning. Um, but really the things that you're doing as a gardener, we, as, as a culture, we love to do stuff. We love to feel productive. And this goes again to this idea of wanting our garden to be really productive it's a mind shift to say our plants are productive. Like they're the ones doing the work and we're just creating the right conditions. And, and of course those things, I mentioned sun and water. The third in that, it, that's so important is creating soil that's alive, creating a garden that is full of life that supports the plants. And so there's a mindset shift. There's a mindset shift that I would love for gardeners to come in as a beginner and say, these are living, breathing things. What do they need? Um, because a lot of times we look at nature and we think that we somehow know more than nature. You know, we come in and we're like, oh, that's a plant. I've seen that plant before. Okay. I know what that is. But in reality, nature is so diverse and so amazing. And, uh, and so coming in with this curiosity of, okay, what do these plants really need? And how can I deliver the right 
conditions so that they emerge. So that's really the thing. And I'm sure you talked about this with your planting of your pollinator habitat and setting up the conditions for your fruit trees, you know, for the long haul, you're basically creating conditions where nature is going to really thrive over the course of decades, not just over the course of weeks. And so that to me is a mindset shift. Um, that's all about not being the doer, allowing the plants to be the ones that grow. Yeah, I love that. And it's so funny because I'm so glad that you mentioned soil health. That is, I think, probably the number one thing that when people have problems with their plants, it almost, now, of course, if you don't water them and they don't have the proper amount of sunlight, but almost always yep. we can pinpoint it back to something lacking in the soil or not the right soil conditions for that plant. And so I'm really, I'm really glad that you brought that up because a lot of times people overlook that and they don't, like they know they need decent soil, but they don't really know necessarily, well, what does that mean? Or how important that that soil health is to just everything for the plant from it bouncing back from pests or disease and everything is that soil health. So I'm really glad that yeah. you highlighted that yeah. part. Yeah. yeah, and that's really mistake number three is that, you know, what I often see happen is, you know, beginners, they'll say, okay, I want to grow a garden. And then they say, okay, well, I can grow it in anything. Let's say they're in New York City and they have just a balcony. And so they go out and they grab some soil from the garden store. And what beginners, the mistake that beginners make is that they see brown, a chunk of brown stuff <laughs> and it all looks the same, whether it's potting mix or soil or compost. And, and they don't really understand all the differences between those things and what the perfect recipe is for the style of gardening that they are about to do. And so one of the mistakes that I see people make very early, and you're so spot on, because if leaves are turning colors, if you're seeing pests or diseases, so often it's coming back to your soil. And so if the mistake that I see people make is using potting mix in their, gar in their uh, outdoor garden and thinking that it's soil, or mm -hmm. buying soil and putting it in containers and that also doesn't work. It's just not the right mix for containers. You want actually a potting mix. Yes. So, yeah. So this is, this brings up a very uh, big point around mistakes. I don't know if, if you've seen that with the people that you work with. Yeah. Another thing that I see really common, especially right now is people, because we all have heard that compost is wonderful for our garden, that compost mm -hmm. is black gold, that it's a really good thing uh, to help us grow more plants, healthier plants, more abundant harvest. However, compost is not soil. So yes, it's a fabulous addition to our soil, but it is not an independent growing medium for your garden. Yeah. So that's another one that I noticed too, is just a little bit of, of confusion on, on what compost is and, and how to use it appropriately because people We'll just buy compost and, and try to plant in that alone. Yeah, um, yeah. so that's, that's another big mistake that I see. Yeah, it's easy to look at a big chunk of brown stuff and be like, that looks like the same stuff to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we take for granted, we walk on this earth, you know, we walk on the soil and we take for granted that it's just this huge living web of underground critters and microorganisms and we forget you know, it, it seems so solid, but really it's alive. Um, it's, that's the thing I love about gardening is it just really makes you in touch with that. And just to bounce off of what you just said, uh, when I was growing in Brooklyn, you know, I, I had a studio apartment and, and I didn't have a yard. And so the first thing I grew was indoor uh, sprouts and shoots. And you know, I went through the question of, well, why wouldn't I just grow all in compost? Like I'm, I'm just growing in a little shallow tray. You know, why wouldn't I just get compost if that's what people say it leads to such a healthy garden? Well, I can tell you exactly what happens is that usually you get rot because compost is, <laughs> is too wet. <laughs> and the reason I know is that it happened to me. Um, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And related to that is, um, you know, while we're going down the route of mistakes in soil, you know, I hear oftentimes around compost, the questions come up around, you know, can I just throw manure in my garden? 
and how much, you know, composted manure can I throw in? So there's, there's a lot of mistakes that people make in the compost realm and in the fertility realm of their soil. And just a couple of those that come up for me are, um, sometimes I'll see people put too much manure down over and over and over every year. Mm-hmm. And what can happen is there, there becomes an overabundance sometimes of phosphorus and potassium in the soil. And, and that can happen just with too much of any good thing. And what happens is that the soil starts to bind up certain nutrients in certain ways, and it actually produces nutrient deficiencies in your plants. And it seems like you're doing a great thing. So there can be too much of a good thing. So I like to tell people, and I know that you have animals on your, on your property, so maybe you have a different um, criteria that you use. But in your vegetable gardens, I often tell people, I'm like, you know, if you're putting anything more than an inch of composted manure on your vegetable garden a year, you, you might find some trouble down the road. Um, and there, there are some exceptions, but I, I would say a, a, too much of a good thing is too much of a good thing. And, um, and then the other, on the other end, I know a lot of people who are plant-based, they eat plant-based and they want to have a vegan garden and they're, they're reluctant to use any kind of animal products in their soil fertility. So let's say there's a product with bat guano or horse manure or cow manure or chicken or rabbit or whatever it is. And they're reluctant to use some of those animal products. And what they might find over time is that it's harder to get some of the phosphorus that they need for their fruiting plants like tomatoes and peppers. And so for anybody who's starting to think about your soil fertility and really creating a a great habitat for healthy plants, you want to figure out a system that works over the years, um, that you're adding the same amounts each year and you're getting the results that you want and you're kind of testing those results over time. Um, And I'm curious from your perspective, if any of that resonates with you or those are things that you see from people. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And in fact, one of the things that um, I recommend just because it is so true that too much of a good thing is still too much in the garden and can be detrimental. I really, a really easy analogy is Goldilocks and the three bears, right? So too hot, too much, it's bad. Too low, it's bad. There really is this, this balance in the middle on all of our different levels that's ideal when we're talking about macro and micronutrients in our soil and, and for our plants. And so oftentimes I'll see the same thing like, I see a lot of people right now because we know that we do need a certain amount of calcium and magnesium for our, well, we need all of the macro and micronutrients to a degree, but especially when it comes to tomatoes to avoid things like blossom end rot. And that's true for any fruiting plant, your squashes as well. So I see a lot of people wanting to just dump the Epsom salts and ground up eggshells and all of these calcium items into their soil where they're planting their tomatoes. And I always have to say, well, is your soil low in that? Because if it's not, and you're adding these huge amounts every single year, and one, you shouldn't be planting your tomatoes in the same soil every year anyways. But, um, and I see that. And so I'm like, no, it's not just a, just as a rule of thumb, you should not be adding these huge amounts of these nutrients to your soil because you can how our plants are doing just like you said i take a look at how the plants are doing and i will do soil testing every oh every couple of years um if i am introducing some new things that we're doing to the soil and i really want to see the scientific results but i kind of look at how my my plants are doing and then we'll add extra manure if i feel like growth is really down and some of them are struggling or if i'm doing a lot of heavy brassica planting um then I might put down a little bit more composted chicken manure. And I'm growing almost year round in the same amount of soil using cold frames in the winter months, but definitely doing succession planting. So I've got you know crops going in in March um, all the way through the fall and, and into the winter. So um, usually we do about a once a year application of composted manure um, with some straw because I'm shoveling out chicken boxes. So mine's not just pure manure, right? It's got, it's got straw in there with the cows. It's got a breakdown of, of either sawdust, um, wood chips and stuff. Um, and so I'm putting about an inch to two inches once a year um, on the garden. So very similar though. I definitely see when people start to add too much and the plants will let you know <laughs> if they've got too much of something, as long as you know how to read those signs. Yeah. And, and I think that's, 
that's the interesting thing that I always see is whenever people are watching their plants and something is going wrong, they automatically assume that it's too little of something. So I've actually seen um, this come, we've been talking about fertility, but this goes for watering as well. So um, I've seen people, this, this could be classified as another mistake. You know, you see your plants turning funny colors and you think, oh my gosh, they must be deficient in something. And you start throwing down more and more stuff before you're really understanding if it's really too too little of something, or maybe it's too much of something, right? And yeah. And so the same mistake happens with plants. And I have seen this so much, especially with container gardens where, um, oftentimes, uh, people will, and, and also with indoor plants, there'll be too much water and a sign that your plant is getting too much water can be yellowing of leaves. And so a lot of times when people see yellow leaves, they think, oh my gosh, my plant is dying. I'm going to water it more. And so you're basically compounding the problem. And so as it, when you're just getting started, it's hard to decipher which is which. But as you get more experience, you start to understand the differences. So as a beginner, what I would recommend doing is, you know, if you aren't sure what the problem is, right? Like, okay, my leaves are yellowing. Does that mean that I'm watering too much? Or does that mean that there's a deficiency? Well, the first thing you can do is dial back the water a little bit and see what happens. <laughs> um, and before you go into adding something. And so if your soil, you could reach in and really feel like, is my soil moist all the time? Like it, soil actually needs to dry out sometimes. It actually likes drying out sometimes. It doesn't want to be moist all the time. And um, so you can allow yourself to dry out a little bit, see what happens. Um, and then the other thing you can do is you can say, okay, if it's yellowing, I'm not going to, like you said, I'm not going to dump a whole bunch of stuff down, but I might try a little bit of added, uh, especially in the case of yellowing leaves. Usually that's a sign of, if, it, if it's a sign of nutrient deficiency, oftentimes that's a nitrogen deficiency. Yeah. And so you could try a little bit of seaweed fertilizer to see what happens um, and, and watch it and see and take notes. This is the most valuable thing when you're getting started is taking notes of what's happening and what you did to address it and what the result was so that the next year when you encounter the same problem, you can remember. And oftentimes you don't have to reference your notes, just the fact of writing them down makes them, makes you remember them. You're like 50% more uh, capable of remembering things that you write down versus things you don't write down. So it, not only with your fertility, but there's also these sort of moments of too much or too little with your watering as well. So um, my, my advice for anybody is keep a journal and take photos. I love a photo journal because you know, the, the benefit of having an iPhone these days or, or any kind of phone, I shouldn't, you know, not necessarily an iPhone, but any phone, they have great cameras on them. And so if you were to go out and take a photo of your garden every week this year, that would be an amazing record. That would be a living document for you to reference next year to say, is this normal? Is this not normal? How does this compare to last year? Um, and you start to recognize, okay, things when that plant went yellow, this is what I did. And this is, this is what happened as a result. So I highly recommend if you're in that beginning stage and you're wondering, is it too much? Is it too little? Keep that record. And that's going to, that's just going to be worth its weight in gold the next year. Oh yeah. I couldn't agree more. Records are so important. And honestly, not just for beginners, all gardeners, because I have to say personally, I haven't always been a good record keeper. And when you've been growing, um, we're here on our homestead, we've been here since 2006, so 14 years. Um, it is amazing how I like to think I have a really great memory, but after 14 years of the gardening in the same spot, I'm like, oh, what year did I have this here? Like for crop rotation and just so many different things. <laughs> and so having those records becomes invaluable, even as an experienced gardener, because trust me, the seasons and the gardens, they really start to run together. Um, so yeah, that is such an important thing. And like you said, because of all the biodiversity that we have in nature, there's best practices uh, that we share for gardening to help people. But 
your microclimates and your microzones and exactly where you live um, is special to you. And so having records of your property and your garden, like you said, I, yeah, I feel like I can't stress that enough, which is why I'm reiterating a lot of it. It's so important. <laughs> yeah, I love that tip. Yeah. And, and, and actually that's, that leads in. I mean, one of the other, the, the things that I hear people say, and I think it's such a mistake to take this, this question on, I get this question a lot. You know, I help hundreds of thousands of people from six different continents And that means a lot of very unique climates. Like you just mentioned, like there's all these little microclimates, even within a city, even within New York City, there's little microclimates, right? And in the mountains, there's so many microclimates. And one of the things that comes up for me a lot is people will say, yeah, that works for you in California, but that's not going to work for me here in Arizona, or that's not going to work for me here in Florida, or that's not going to work for me here in Detroit. And what I like to uh, share with people is, just that question alone is, is actually a mistake. (laughs) Here's why. So there's a plants. We, we already talked about this today about plants wanting to grow. And the minute that you separate your climate as like a separate condition that, that you're somehow unique, there are so many people growing in your specific conditions there's so many plants that are specifically bred for your conditions. There's so many ways to look at your unique climate. So the first thing that I like to have people do in, in all my classes is to look very closely at their temperatures, their precipitation, their, the number of days that go above the heat index, 85 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, all of these different conditions that are unique to your situation. And then mapping that over the year, mapping those temperatures so that you know which plants to focus on. And I have used the same system of growing in Brooklyn, in Arizona, in Florida, in San Diego. And people think that a system means like it's all the same. Um, A system of growing means that you understand what the plants want and you give it to them and that you weave it into your specific unique climate conditions. So just by asking the question, you know, oh, well, I'm unique. I'm in this unique situation. You can't help me. um, It puts this sort of resistance in. Here's the thing I would love for you to understand that plants are the same. My kale plant wants the same thing that your kale plant wants. And if you can understand what that plant wants, you can give it to it no matter where you live. Um, so the, I know it's a weird way to phrase what a mistake is, but this, this sort of objection of I'm unique or I'm different, you're actually not that different. Plants grow everywhere. They really do. Um, there is a, there's a specific variety that's going to work really well in your area. There's a specific timing that's going to work really well in your area. Just by shifting the timing of when you plant people in Florida, I I love this example, you know, tomatoes in Florida in the summer is a nightmare. You just don't want to do it, but you can grow in the fall and in the spring and have an amazing tomato season. But most people think that, you know, if they move from, let's say Detroit to Florida, and then they try to apply the same growing principles. They try to grow tomatoes in the summer and they're like, oh, this is a nightmare. That's because you don't grow tomatoes in the summer in Florida. <laughs> but you can use the same system of thought of how do the climate conditions contribute to healthy plants? So I don't know. If, does that make sense what I'm sharing? Oh, it makes, uh, yes, 100% sense. Because I'm just like you with my book, The Family Garden Plan. I have a lot of people will ask and, you know, my different gardening stuff too. Well, I'm in gardening zone A, B, or C, which you know they're numbers, they're not A, B, or C, but just for example, or I live in, just like you said, a specific state, et cetera, or I live in a different country. Does this apply to me? And the answer is yes, because just like you shared, the, the gardening basics and the fundamentals of the plant, they don't, cha- they don't know what continent you live in or what zip code. They don't care. <laughs> what you alter, just like you said, is knowing 
when to plant them based upon your temperatures and first and last average frost dates. And, and I recommend documenting those as well because averages are great and we can get those online. You can get your average first and last frost date, but knowing what your first and last frost date is every year and having that information to track is so invaluable because just like you were sharing here in Washington state, no joke, if I drive 30 minutes down the mountain, they can plant things three weeks earlier than I can. And, and that's not, you know, 30 miles away approximately. That's not that huge of a difference. We're technically very close to the same, you know, everything, but it makes a huge difference when you're planting out like tomatoes, because if they get a frost, they're going to die. So we can still grow everything the same, just like you said, but you're going to be putting it in at a different time. And I have to say that brings up, I don't know if you experience this very much, but another mistake that I see very, very common, especially right now, is people wanting to say, okay, I'm gardening zone seven. When do I plant? When do I plant my garden? And I'm like, oh, it has nothing to do. Your gardening zone, it has nothing to do with your planting dates. It has, it's your average low temperatures in the winter time. And it definitely pertains to which um, varieties of perennials you can put in because they're only hardy down to a certain zone or a certain temperature without taking protective measures. But as far as when you're planting, that really has nothing to do with your gardening zone. So I think that's a, a big mistake I see as people not understanding what gardening zone means um, for planting out their garden, what it actually in relation to their garden, what it means. Yeah, hundred percent. And I, I think that, you know, the, there's been so many ways in which people try to simplify gardening to make it accessible to more people. And, and so they tried to use this one data point, like you mentioned, this one data point of minimum uh, average temperature uh, as a way to say when you would plant things. It just doesn't work. And I'm, I'm, I, when people tell me what zone they're gardening, I'm like, that doesn't tell me anything. Tell me more about your climate. So what I would recommend is this curiosity about your climate, like just really getting to know the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows and the What's interesting to me is that as you garden, you start to get so appreciative of the little details. Like you start to see the dew and you start to understand what that means. And you start to see condensation sometimes in the morning and you start to understand what that means. You start to see or you start to feel the temperature on your skin at night and you're like, oh, it's time to plant cucumbers. You know, you, it's very fascinating to me that when you start to dial in to the cycles of nature and you start to track it, like you said, and record those numbers and that you're, you might be different three blocks from somebody else because of the mountains or whatever, whatever else is going on. When you start to track that for yourself and get in tune with it, what you find over time is that gardening becomes so much simpler and that's when it starts to look so easy. So really going back to like looping back to that beginning comment about getting curious about what the plants want and getting curious about what it feels like and in your local climate. It's really, I think it's really fun. I'm, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm kind of a science geek that way. Um, <laughs> you know, everybody wants it to be super simple and the simplest answer is really to like, look at the data. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I geek out about like, I love to run experiments. Yes. And I'll try different cold frames and I will take my infrared thermometer out in the morning before the yes. sun's up and I will record each temperature difference so that I know which cold frame offers the most protection. How about like, yep. yeah, I, yeah, I never thought of myself as scientific really um, until I started to look at what I was doing and I'm like, oh, totally, total science geek <laughs> on, the, on the data and the analytics, like, like ridiculously. So I get really excited. I think it's so fun to try to, I like to push the envelope a little bit being in this cooler climate. So like to see like, how early can I put this out and what's going to let me grow it even earlier um, to the plant and stuff. So one of the things that we mentioned in the beginning, and I want to make sure that we share with people before we wrap up, is we had mentioned that there are some crops that you can plant and get a harvest on relatively soon. Yeah. So I thought it'd be great if you share yours um, on, on those crops that you like to do for people. 
Yeah. I mean, my favorite, you can grow them anywhere. And actually, whenever I travel and I go visit my parents for the holidays, I actually take seeds with me so that I can grow. So I love growing pea shoots and sunflower shoots because they are ready in seven days. That's nutty. I mean, (laughs) fresh food in a week. (laughs) I mean, think about that. And, um, and what's cool about pea shoots is that they will grow back. And so you can get like a couple harvests from them. Um, and sometimes it takes up to 10 days, you know, sometimes they're a little bit slow, but 10 days is pretty fast, pretty fast. That is Um, fast. Yeah. And then those, and what's cool about those two things is that they don't require sunlight. Um, so you can, I mean, light is nice. It'll turn them a little bit more green but you don't need indoor lights. You can put them on a windowsill and they can get a little bit of light, but in general, they'll grow without the light. Um, Anything that grows longer than that really does need light. Um, But there are things that grow pretty fast. So like you mentioned earlier that you had some Tulsi seeds that had started and you you could pull off a little bit of leaves. I love microgreens. And so pretty much all the lettuce greens and all of the mustard greens. I'm a big mustard green fan. Arugula is one type of mustard green, but there are hundreds of varieties. And so I like to just spread like a bunch of seeds out and just have like a lettuce mix. And I'll even mix in there some herbs, some basil, like you mentioned, and some parsley and some other things. And the lettuces and the mustards within, you know, 21 days, you'll have these little like baby salad greens, basically. Um, so that's not that long to wait. And, and there are some radishes that are 21 days. I think it's, um, is it called uh, Sora? Is that the, I'm trying to remember that um, variety that I have. Um, but there are some radishes that also grow in in 21 days. So all of those things are pretty fast. And, and I will say this as well, that if you're a beginner, starting from seed outside in the summertime can be a little bit more, it, it's going to take a little bit longer to get the harvest that you might want. And so if you were to go out and you were to buy transplants, like baby, I call them like teenager plants. They're like six inches tall, buy some kale or some collard or some chard, and you were to plant that you can start to harvest the outer leaves within the first couple of weeks and you can start to have food pretty quickly. So there, the, in the greens family, there's quite a bit that you can do in a pretty short amount of time. Yeah. And I love that you shared that with, with the greens for a lot of our other stuff. It's going to take a lot longer, even if yeah. you do by starts, but yeah, with those greens. And so I love to do microgreens as well. And another thing, if you're like, okay, well, I don't have soil to do my microgreens um, is I love to do sprouts just yeah. right in the mason jar. And those are like three to four days. So of course they don't, you know, it doesn't get as, as large. It's a lot smaller harvest, but it is something that's fresh and green and that you can just do right on the countertop without anything other than a jar um, and the seeds, of course, which I love that you were giving a lot of the different varieties because a lot of people, when it comes to microgreens too, and this could be classified as a beginner's mistake, is they think that you need a specific kind, like there's an actual microgreen seed that you Ah. get. I I get that a lot and and I, you know, and I I love it because I actually love the questions. Cause I know it's just, it's people learning and they want to do it and, and they have this innate desire, like, well, I want to do it right. I want to make sure I get the right stuff so that this succeeds. So I, I totally get it. Um, but I just thought I would throw that out there because someone may be listening and being like, well, what micro, you know, what micro green seeds do I need? And it's any regular seed. There's not a special micro green variety. Um, you're just harvesting it while it's still a small green, hence micro green. I love that. I love that. I haven't gotten that question, but I could totally see that. You know, the language of gardening, there, it's, it's a new language to learn. And I think that's why it's so easy to make mistakes. Because there are words that you might misunderstand. Um, the, the, even the words raised garden bed is, uh, is something that is um, talked about in multiple ways. And so... I would, love, I would love to frame this whole conversation as gardening is this wonderful place of experimentation and everything that was once considered a mistake might be, have led to knowledge or it could lead to a whole new way of doing things. 
And so some of the things, some of the ways that people garden today, they, we do these things because somebody long a time ago said, I wonder what would happen if we did it this way. So for anybody who's thinking about gardening and a beginner, um, don't be, don't be too hard on yourself for making a mistake or misunderstanding something. Cause it is a, a language to learn. And also don't be afraid to say, to do something that other people say not to do and just to see what the results are for your own benefit. And maybe you might discover something. So it's all, it's a really fun place to experiment. I have to say that. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, Susie, this has been really fun. I feel like we've covered a lot of stuff, really good information to help people. So if, if listeners want to learn more about you and connect with you, where is the best space for them to do that? The best place to go is to growyourownvegetables.org. That is the best place to, we have a guide there that we always have up on the front page of our website, which is five keys to an abundant harvest. And it walks you through creating the conditions that are right for growing vegetables and herbs so that you can get that harvest that you're looking for. So that's the absolute best place to reach us. Okay. Love it. Thank you so much. I had so much fun. I can't wait till we get a hangout again. And thank you for coming on. Thanks so much. I hope this helps people. I hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. And for any of the resources, so any of the different things that we were talking about, we'll have links for you and you can get those at melissaknorris.com forward slash 255. So just the numbers 255 because this is episode number 255. And I would love to hear if those are any mistakes that you have made or if you've got any common mistakes or things that you have noticed and been able to rectify in your own garden. Our garden is constantly a learning environment, but I am all about learning from others and sharing what I've learned so that we can try to bypass some of those mistakes and make our garden an even more enjoyable spot and more productive, though sometimes I'm reluctant to use that word because it should be a place of joy. But I got to be honest, I also need it to produce food as well. So I would love to hear any of your thoughts or any of the things that you have learned. You can leave me a review beneath this episode, shoot me an email or find me on social media. And I hope that you take advantage and go and watch those free videos of the Organic Gardening Workshop if you haven't done it yet at melissaknorris.com forward slash workshop. Okay. I... I'm going to be, as I said, next week, we're going to be talking about raising meat chickens. Now, some of the stuff on the first episode um, will be, I'll be talking about raising meat chickens, but it really will pertain to raising any chicks when you get them when they're really small. So we'll be briefly going over that, but I do have some other episodes that I will reference on the first six weeks with chicks. But if you're listening to this and you're not following my, me on Instagram or Facebook, whichever one you happen to be on, you may want to go and check me out over there because who doesn't need to see videos and pictures of baby chicks more, right? There's just something about baby animals that we all love. Baby farm animals is one of my favorite parts of living on a homestead. So I'm going to be sharing and documenting the process when we bring ours home, which at the day, the day that this podcast episode releases is the day that I, my chicks are scheduled to arrive. So I hope to see you over there. And I can't wait to be back here with you next week. Mm -hmm.